Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, y'all, just so you know, we're going to be talking about this week's episodes of In Treatment. So spoilers are ahead. We also wanted to let you know that we'll be having conversations about suicide and suicidal ideation. There's also some explicit language in this podcast, so please take care of yourself while listening. Hey y'all, my name is Brandon Kyle Goodman. My pronouns are he and they, and I am a writer, I'm an actor, and I'm an activist, and I'm also a proud black queer person. And I am Dr. Janelle S. Pfeiffer. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and academic, and I am also a mom. And welcome to In Session, which is the official companion podcast of the HBO show In Treatment, where we're going to deconstruct what happens on the show to understand how therapy works. Just as a reminder, this is not a substitute for therapy. So if you feel like you would want to talk to somebody, please reach out to a mental health professional. Let's get started. This is the good stuff. Some would say it's the meaning of life. Okay, so in just a bit, we'll get into what happened on the show this week. But first, we're so excited because today we have the person who knows everything that goes into the making of In Treatment, Jennifer Shore. Jennifer is the co-showrunner this season, along with executive producer and writer Joshua Allen. So, okay, Brandon, I know that this is your world. You've written for a few television shows, but I don't know what exactly is a showrunner. Can you break it down for me? It's such a big job, Dr. J. I I like to describe it as the Beyonce of the show. (laughs) Like they are, they run everything. It is their vision. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they hire the writer's room. They hire all the department heads. They work in pre-production, post-production. Basically, they don't ever sleep. Like Beyonce. So Jennifer is like a renaissance woman who's exhausted. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. We are so happy to have you here. Yes. Welcome, Jen. Showrunning sounds like a huge job. So to start off, can you tell us a little bit about what it looks like to share the showrunning duties with Joshua? I mean, this job in particular was never designed to be a one-person job because what HBO was asking us for were 24 half-hour episodes from conception to finished product in about nine months. Wow. Which is really unheard of (laughs) these days. Um, A lot of times, 10-episode shows will take two years to get done from start to finish. You know, when we think about NBC, ABC, those networks do 24, but HBO usually is like a 10-episode. So that's a really big undertaking. It really was. Yeah. You know, on a network, you know, half-hour network show, They have commercials, so their scripts are much shorter. This is still a full 25, 30 minutes of material to get through. So it was a big job from the outset, and so it felt good to be able to have a partner in that. Mm -hmm. And as much as I think Josh and I would have conversations about, you know, let's figure out how to divide and conquer uh, on this, things were coming so fast and furious all the time. It was just sort of do it, decide, and then move forward and tackle the next thing. And Mm. thankfully, what I will say about Josh and I's partnership is I'm so grateful. We really shared a story sensibility. Mm -hmm. That can be really tricky when you're working so closely with someone else if they feel like the way they tell stories just instinctually is very different. Sure. But we were always, you know, when when the idea came up and we heard it, we both knew it was the right idea. So that was phenomenal. And we're going to get into like the specifics of this show, but just kind of globally, how did In Treatment come to you? Because it's been 10 years since the last season. Mm-hmm, 10 years. So how did you come to be involved in season four? I have been working with HBO for a long time. I do another show for them called My Brilliant Friend. Mm-hmm. And so they are well aware of how open I am about my own therapy journey in my life. And I think they thought that this could be a really unique way for me to express some of those things and some of my journey through a format that already existed. 
so obviously the first three seasons were with Dr. Paul. And this season, you rebooted it with Brooke, Dr. Brooke. And so what was the kind of thinking behind going from, you know, a character that we had been established with for those three seasons to a completely different character uh, who we know are connected, but it's now we're talking about a black woman therapist. Mm-hmm. We love it. But what was the reasoning behind it? You know, that's the first question that anyone, you know, sort of approach with the idea of rebooting a show or reimagining a show. You have to ask yourself what makes it worthwhile to do that? Yeah. And what makes it both feel as if it pays homage and and honors the original, which was a phenomenal piece of television when it came out 10 years yes. ago. Mm-hmm. So how do you do that and make sure that you're respectful of the original, but mm-hmm. there's a reason to do it now? Yeah. So once we started talking about why now, how can we make this feel very relevant mm-hmm. and be able to say the things that we want to say with the show throughout the season what does the person sitting in that therapist chair look like? Where does he or she come from? What is the lived experience of this person? And after sort of thinking about all of that, it became clear that Dr. Brooke Taylor was our woman mm-hmm. to be doing it. How did you come to thinking about the type of therapist she would be and really the type of therapy she'd practice as well? I mean, I think that really does come out of my own experience. I've been in therapy 17 years every week with the same therapist. Yeah. And she comes from a more of a Jungian tradition. And she also really practices psychodynamic therapy at her core. And so I felt like I had a lot of experience in seeing how those modalities worked and how they are brought into the room Mm -hmm. with myself. And then thought it's a really relational way to have a therapist engage with her patients. And that felt like good storytelling at the same time. On the APA's, the American Psychological Association's website, I'd love to read the definition of psychodynamic therapy, unless (laughs) Dr. Pfeiffer, unless you want to jump in. No, no, you do it. Take it. Yes, please. It's a really good encapsulation of what we see Brooke do week to week with her patients. You know, it says psychodynamic therapy focuses on the psychological roots of emotional suffering. Its hallmarks are self-reflection and self-examination and the use of the relationship between therapist and patient as a window into problematic relationship patterns in the patient's life. And I think that's what we see week to week with Eladio and Colin Mm -hmm. and Layla. You see Brooke bringing that relationship between herself and the patient, not just sitting back and being sort of an observer and offering pearls of wisdom from time to time. She is really engaging with her patient in a relationship in a way, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> Yes. So Uzo is phenomenal. So did Uzo come first to mind or did Brooke come first? Did you like how did we go about casting Uzo? Well, Brooke existed on the page first, mm. but we certainly knew we wanted particular qualities, a sort of gravitas, an intelligence, a warmth Mm -hmm. that made you want to confide in her, but at the same time, you know, you trusted her. Mm -hmm. And so once our wonderful casting directors got involved and very quickly they said, you know, Uzo Aduba might be available and she might be interested. (laughs) And in that moment, I don't even think I could have dreamed of Uzo Aduba. Like, I don't know that that was, that was like Mm -hmm. a bigger dream than I could have even had when we came up with Dr. Brooke Taylor. So the moment they mentioned that it became, she was, she was it for us. Yeah. Yeah. And thankfully we were able to, to talk her into doing this crazy job. Thankfully. (laughs) Well, it's such a theatrical show as well. The the idea of like this two hander, it feels like you're watching a play and Uzo for anyone who doesn't know is comes from theater and is incredible Mm -hmm. in that space. And so it was really, it's been beautiful to watch her get to flex those muscles in, in, and like with the language of this show, which is so specific Mm -hmm. and so just gorgeous. It's been such a, a joy uh, a master class. Really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was certainly one of our priorities when we started the casting process was to hopefully be able to get actors with a theater background because mm-hmm. truly we would show up on set each day and you'd basically be watching 
a one-act play (laughs) every day. Yes, Um, They would have to have the facility with the language, the ability to learn massive amounts of material. Mm -hmm. Massive! (laughs) In very short periods of time. It is a very particular skill set, and we certainly feel like we knocked it out of the park with our actors. All of them across the board were just phenomenal. I know. There were some times where I'll watch and I'm like, oh my God, they're still talking. How would I learn those lines? Would I be in the trailer? Like, (laughs) so many lines. Yeah. I'll tell you one fun fun story. It was, I'll never experience anything like it again, I am sure, in the in the whole of my career. But we were shooting an episode with Colin mm-hmm. and Brooke, with Uzo and John Benjamin Hickey. Mm. And, you know, we usually would stop about halfway through the script, page 14, 15, somewhere in there, you know. And we would just shoot that part of the day. And then the second half of the day, we'd shoot the second half. And our director noticed that by the time, you know, right around the pages we were supposed to be cutting, that mm-hmm. there was a real flow happening in the room. And so she just, she never called cut. And wow. they did the entire episode from yeah. start to finish <laughs> in one take. And it was the most thrilling yeah. thing I had ever seen. I, I, as it started to happen, I'm like, am I watching this? Is this really happening in front of me? And, you know, That's of course, oh my it was God. spectacular. Yep. So never again. That was a one and only time. <laughs> You're like, I can retire. I'm yeah, good. Exactly. <laughs> uh, for our listeners at home, like that doesn't happen. There's always so many cuts. It's like one page and then we're cut, change angles. And so the idea of just allowing somebody to do the full 30 page or 40 page script straight through is unbelievable. Unbelievable. That's exciting. I was on my feet cheering the second she called cut. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. Screaming. Yeah. <laughs> I want to pivot and ask a question in another direction. And I also want to be conscious of asking this question. Can't don't want to get my feminist card revoked by any <laughs> state. But it seems like the design of the show and some of the aesthetic choices and the costumes, the colors have some relevance and meaning. Um, particularly as we look at Dr. Brooks' perfectionism, her achievement. I wonder if you can talk to us about the aesthetic and yeah. what that means to you. Which we love, by the way. Oh, my God, it's yes. insane. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> and also, I do love it. <laughs> it was yes. very aspirational showing up on set every yes. day. <laughs> at, on its most basic level, here you have a single woman who ostensibly knows who she is, knows what she likes, and she can sort of curate her wardrobe and her space in a way where she doesn't have to compromise with anyone Mm -hmm. else. So it Mm -hmm. gets to be what she wants it to be. And I do think it is beautiful. And I think it is feminine. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's okay. I think that is exactly who she is and who she wants to be. It is also who she wants to project to the world, Mm -hmm. which is very put together, very tasteful. She has control over her environment. And, you know, I think that masks some of the messiness that's going on underneath for her. Sure, I think it's a great way to compartmentalize. And if she can put on her face in the morning and put on those beautiful clothes, she's fine. Yeah. You know, she doesn't maybe necessarily have to face some of the darker elements that are swirling in her life. And also, I would imagine there was conversation about her being a black woman, right? And mm-hmm. and what and what clothing she was going to wear as that. What, what were some of those conversations? Mm-hmm. Ultimately, I think we wanted to let her be as beautiful as she can be. Yes. I mean, there's no reason to hide that light mm-hmm. that Uzo has herself, and we think the character of Dr. Brooke has. Yeah. Um, we just wanted to let her shine mm-hmm. in her space. Yes. She's very tasteful and beautiful, and there is no reason why that needs to be colored by, you know, any other sort of ideas about what a woman should be in that role or a black woman should be in that role, frankly. Yeah, that first episode, my husband could tell you, I was gorgeous, stunning. Oh, my God, stunning, gorgeous. (laughs) (laughs) The entire time. Uh, It's so good. Yes, we did want to differentiate the look of this season from previous seasons. And, you know, I think part of that was putting Brooke inside her actual living room instead of sort of in this little office surrounded by books and things. Um, giving her more of a space to move in, a more open space to move in, to let the light of Southern California, of Los Angeles, come in through those windows. And uh, we really wanted to just differentiate it in that way. 
and you succeeded. Yes. <laughs> you one thousand percent succeeded. Well, let's talk about the, the the decision to make Brooke's character an alcoholic and to have mm-hmm. her weekly episode be with a sponsor instead of a therapist. How did that storyline develop? Well, we can go back to the very basic questions that you ask at the beginning of conceptualizing any show again. And one of the things that we sort of talked about is how do we update the format a little bit? How do we not just have another therapist sitting across from Brooke um, on her episodes per week? How do we sort of shake that up a little bit, make it feel fresh and interesting? And we felt like the role of a sponsor is someone who you tell them a lot of personal details about your life. It can be a very close and meaningful relationship where there can be some conflict involved. Mm -hmm. You know, all of those things that you can have in a relationship with a therapist, but without the degrees on the wall and without formal nature of those relationships. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to try to get messy in those weeks uh, between Brooke and Rita. Mm -hmm. And the alcoholism part was really born out of the fundamental theme in my life, my entire life. Mm. And it felt like here's a place where we can explore what that looks like with someone who is supposed to know and have all the answers Mm -hmm. and someone who's really struggling to come up with those answers for herself Mm. and instead turning to an answer that doesn't actually solve any problems. And thinking about that, you know, we have this character who is very well educated, very well off, very well respected. Were there any tropes when you thought about making her an alcoholic that you didn't want to fall into or any conventions that you were trying to break or avoid in terms of what we've usually seen when we see alcoholism or addiction depicted on TV? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we tried to make it as specific as possible as human to watch as possible. I think, you know, did we want, ever want to see Brooke pull a mini bottle out of her purse in the middle of a session and sneak a drink? No. Yeah. <laughs> we always wanted to feel like her patients were in good hands, mm-hmm. uh, that they weren't in danger by coming into session with her, that she could literally compartmentalize as much as possible in her life. Obviously, as we get into week five and into week six, you know, we'll see that some of those boundaries get blurred. Right. But I think there's a lot of truth to high functioning alcoholism and that people can have really successful professional lives and also be addicts. And that's what we wanted to see. Yeah, I think that that's really important to portray, especially after this year where we see the uptick in substance use and relapse, um, and for folks to know that this is across class, race, socioeconomic lines. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. So in thinking about, well, talking about the pandemic, it's present in the series, but it's not the focus of the show. So how did you talk about the ways that it was affecting Brooke, both as a therapist and as someone who struggles with alcoholism? I mean, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, I certainly spoke to my therapist a lot about what it was like for her to sort of upend her practice as she knew it. Mm -hmm. There's something about sitting in person with someone that's very intimate and I think revealing. And I think people who have been at it for a very long time and Dr. Pfeiffer, you can can say this is true or not, but I think you rely on a lot of the cues, Mm -hmm. the interpersonal cues that happen in a room. And those are are taken away in a way. So... I think Brooke is struggling with, initially, she had to shut down her practice and move into her home and figure out how she was going to allow patients to come in without giving too much of herself away. Mm -hmm. She is a single woman. She does not yet have children. Not sure she wants to do that. But with the pandemic for people who are living alone, I mean, everybody's life got put on hold, Mm -hmm. right? Medical offices were shut down. Every single decision that you could move your life forward with were sort of taken away. Uh, for a while. And, you know, I think that made Brooke look at her life. Obviously, the death of her father threw that into sharp relief. Yeah. She's wrestling with a lot, like a lot of us have over the past year. And sometimes the answer comes in a way that just lets you stop thinking for a minute. In thinking about her experience and her journey and the passing of her father, obviously, in this week five, we also learn about her mother a little more. What were the conversations in your writer's room surrounding alcoholism, the pandemic, and and boundaries? No, those are deep conversations that you certainly have when writers get together. One of the great 
things is that a writer's room can become a really safe space to share personal stories and personal history. Yeah. And we certainly foster that environment. And, mm. and both Josh and I come from families with addiction in their midst. Mm -hmm. Mm. And, you know, I was also watching one of my immediate family members relapse during the pandemic uh, after eight years of sobriety. Mm -hmm. Mm. And so, you know, those are all really challenging Mm -hmm. issues to talk about, but we certainly wanted to make sure that we treated them honestly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Also, you know, it's not always the most flattering portrayal of Brooke, but I think the way that she is able to pick herself up each and every week and that we can find ourselves somehow rooting for her. I think we all, we would talk a lot about how with the addicts in your life, you never stop rooting for them. Yeah. <laughs> no matter how, I mean, even if you have to cut ties and move on, like there is a part of you that is always wanting them to find their way and find their way to sobriety. And so that is what we always were looking to make sure that we were hoping that people would feel for Brooke, you know, just this rooting interest in her in her health and her well-being and getting back on track. 1000%. Mm-hmm. What I think the show does so successfully is that usually sometimes when I feel like I see addiction on TV or in movies, the addict is at fault and there's such a stigma in our society around people who are wrestling with addiction. And what I think the show does so brilliantly is that you love Dr. Brooke, that you you recognize you recognize the human that she is. And so when you see her struggling, there's a different level of empathy that I that I hope people who watch this, if they don't know anyone that is wrestling with addiction, they take that away. They take that empathy away. That this is a full person, that they aren't yeah. their addiction. They are much more than that. This is a piece that they're working through. And you really feel yeah. that with Dr. Brooke. And it, it's it's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that's beautiful, Brandon. Thank you. <laughs> that's, I mean, that is our greatest hope. So yes. thank you for, for articulating it like that. Yeah. Well, and Jen, thank you for sharing like your personal experience and what that felt like, because that's huge. And I think it goes a long way, like the show does, in bringing this conversation into the light so that we can really talk through it together. So thank you. My pleasure. Brooke's episode this week felt really different from past weeks. Uh, She's doing therapy with herself, and we're watching this unfold. Can we listen to a clip of this? So what are you afraid of? A lot of things. Yes, but what are you afraid of? I don't know. I'm... I'm unlovable. Go further. Unlovable in what way? That's easy. I'm not enough. Enough easy... Answers, what's the hard one? That I'm too much! Yes? That I was too much for my mother! Was this scary for you to write? Because it's a shift in how the show has operated, and now we're in week five, and it's like, you know, this idea of now we're going to have Brooke opposite Brooke. That's a genre shift a little bit, convention breaking inside of what we've established so far. So just as creators and as showrunners, as writers, was that scary or were you like, no, we know we knew we wanted to do this from the beginning? It was terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> it was terrifying. <laughs> it's a it was a giant risk. Yeah. Um because, you know, if it I'm going to hope, I'm going to tell myself that we managed to pull it off. And and by the grace of Uzo Aduba, I think we, if if we did, that is why. But it could have gone really sideways. Like it could have been really not great to watch. Um, So by the grace of Uzo Aduba and Karin Kusama, our director, I think it is beautifully directed. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. But it came from this idea of, you know, we want to, Rita's gone. Paul and, you know, Brooke is still avoiding Paul. You know, are we going to bring him in? What what conversation do we want her to have? I mean, we went down many different avenues. Could it be with her dead father? Could it be with yeah. her son? Um, you know, could we bring them into the room in a, in a supernatural way maybe? Um, but really, I remember going for a walk around the Warner Brothers lot and thinking, we want to be able to have Brooke talk about what's going on for her. That's one priority of this episode. And then, but the other priority that we can never forget in making this show is that it is a show about therapy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So 
bringing her father into the room would be super interesting. But what is that saying about therapy? And same with her son, same, you know, like all of these different iterations that we were sort of kicking around. And so after a moment, I thought, well, what is therapy? You know, it is the ultimate introspection. Mm -hmm. That's Mm. what it is. I thought about how each time I sit across from my therapist and I ask her something like, so what do you think about that? Mm -hmm. And in ways that now we're so well-versed in, she will just almost with a wink be like, well, what do you think about that? Mm Because clearly she just, it's, (laughs) I want to know, you know, it's not about what she thinks about it. And so how do we talk about that's what therapy is, is that self-examination and the self-reflection and the introspection Mm -hmm. with somebody who is really well-versed in the mechanics of therapy. And so why wouldn't we sit her across from herself? She can do this with herself if she's willing to do it. She can ask her, she knows how to do the work if she is willing to sit down and do it. And so that felt, started to feel really exciting. I think what it showed, because whenever a show breaks form, you're like, oh, it's happening. But whenever the intention is so clear, you never miss. You know what I'm saying? And by the end of this episode, my husband and I were weeping because it was like the intention. I think it's clear that you all took a real time to figure out what is the best way to get in and what's the intention behind even doing this. And you can feel that. You know, so it's yes, it's it's Uzo and yes, it's the director, but also it's y'all like Mm -hmm. truly as writers to like to build that out and to really take the time to stay true to the intention of the show and the intention of of Brooke's story. It it was beautiful. Truly. Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, we have to talk about the role of Brooke's mother in her life, who we learned much more about in this week's episode. So how did you think about the mom and what sounds like her own alcoholism? You know, I felt, I think we all felt like it was time in the season to sort of break the mold of what we've been hearing from Brooke as far as what is the nature of her pain, what is the nature of her trauma, what is the root cause of her issues. Mm -hmm. And I know that when I first started going to therapy, I went for one reason and dealt with that Mm -hmm. for, you know, the first year or two. And then all of a sudden it became clear that there's actually a whole other thing going on um, that, you know, spent the last 15 years trying to wrestle with. Um, But it's, you almost go for like, it's the target patient sort of thing. And then you find out that underneath there's a Mm -hmm. a lot more complexity going on um, in your life. And I, that is sort of the idea behind bringing Brooke's mother into this Mm -hmm. episode. Uh, It was about maybe there's so much more to her pain than she's really ever decided to deal with or, or mm. could even access. Um, we tell ourselves these stories growing up, right? That this, this parent is this and this parent is this and this mm. is, you know, yeah. and you have to really investigate those myths around, you know, the stories that we tell ourselves in family mm. dynamics. And so this was sort of breaking a new window mm. for Brooke uh, into where the work maybe can be done to create some healing, more healing for her. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, her, her mother's alcoholism, like, look, we, you know, alcoholism is a family disease. Um, it is, has, a, has a genetic component. And so it really just made sense that that was probably be part of Brooke's family story in some way, shape, or form. Um, that the thing that she swore she would never be, you know, you sort of wake up one day and realize you, you don't look very much unlike that thing. Yeah. To, to know Dr. Brooke and to know how successful and educated and how she's in literally this mental health field and has never made that connection, for me, highlighted how deep our narratives are, especially around our families, and how hard it is, especially with parents, to take your parents off pedestals, no matter how intelligent, how smart, how attuned you are. Parents are really tricky part of our human existence and the inability sometimes to get curious or the fear of getting curious and investigating who your parents are as humans as opposed to who they are as superheroes, which I feel like they're always, for a lot of us, in these kind of superhero can do no wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think in writing this, I really, really tried to access exactly what you're saying, Brandon, which is 
what are the stories that we tell ourselves about our parents that are very hard to break free from and very scary to investigate because it sort of rocks your own foundation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think she had parents in, in very traditional roles mm-hmm. uh, who were living in an, in an era when that was not necessarily rare by any stretch. And so they were just really fulfilling these roles with the secret inside the house. Mm. And when there is a secret inside the house, a lot of talking does not happen. Mm -hmm. A lot of communicating with the children, a lot of, you know, being the child of an alcoholic, there's always the elephant in the room and it's, it doesn't create a lot of warm and open communication. And I think Brooke didn't have that Mm -hmm. and will hopefully be able to um, provide that for herself and find relationships in which she can get that kind of warm, open, and non-judgmental communication um, happening around these issues in her life. What a wonderful benediction for all of us. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, I'm, I'm so glad you're here because I'm so curious about Layla and she pulls for a lot of like the maternal protective vibes for me for sure. Mm-hmm. So when you think about what she brings into the room in terms of safety and possible suicidality, how did you talk about that story arc um, in the writer's room and yeah, together with your team? I think always young people are sort of struggling with this idea of I'm not sure what the future holds. I'm not sure if I'm capable of living up to what the expectations are for my future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what are the options to step away or around or through <laughs> all of those things? I think it's a real struggle at 18 when we go off to college. I mean, Brooke even says at one point, I think to Colin in this week, we ask kids too young, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think we don't know for a lot longer than we expect people to know. Mm -hmm. Look, for Layla, I think you're exactly right, Dr. Pfeiffer. I think suicide is on the menu. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say, you know, I don't know that there aren't other options on the menu too. Mm -hmm. Once we get to the end of this week and, and Brooke asks her, flat out. You know, she says, I have a responsibility to ask you, are you considering suicide? And I think Layla's reaction is a little unexpected. It's, and it's also certainly a little defensive, but also could be completely sincere. Mm -hmm. We talked about it in the room as when you actually approach the idea of suicide with someone who may be suicidal, it actually statistically lessens their Mm -hmm. chance of then committing suicide afterwards. Once it has been brought that elephant has been pointed to in the room. It actually mm-hmm. um, deflates that opportunity statistically. Yeah. doesn't mean it doesn't happen. But I think Brooke is comforted by the idea that it is out in the open and it's something that they can continue to talk about going forward and that she doesn't necessarily have to worry for Layla's immediate well-being the second she walks out the door. I don't know if this, is a, if this would be a spoiler, so if it is, somebody jump in. But I'm... Um, like, is there a reason why Layla's story has suicide attached to it that uh, impacts the storytelling for Brooke? I mean, gosh, when you think about anyone with addiction issues, part of the draw of substance abuse is you get to vanish. You get to disappear from your life. Mm. Reality gets to fall away and you get to, you know, be in a different place. I actually, honestly, Brandon, hadn't really thought about that, but I think there is some some parallels there between how Brooke checks out and then the quote-unquote checking out on the most profound sense. Yeah. Those two characters in particular are looking to escape. So we want to play this clip of Layla where she's talking about how at 18 she feels like her life is already over, which for me is so sad to hear from such a young person. Um, Here's the clip. I just feel like it's too late. Oh, Layla. Oh, like I'm already an adult and I don't know anything about myself. It just seems impossible. It is not impossible. It is for me. Layla, especially for you, nothing is impossible. I feel like my entire self, my entire life is a failure and I... And it's too late to change it. 
you know, watching Layla struggle with this idea, she's, her whole life has been dictated to her. And I think there's a generation coming up and, and sort of maybe exiting college now and, and into their late 20s. I, you know, all these young people who had very involved parents in their lives. Um, the sort of helicopter parent. Um, and, you know, that st- certainly still exists. I think there's a little bit of a backlash mm-hmm. against mm-hmm. that um, in this day and age. But, you know, I think Layla has been helicoptered over her entire life, and she does not believe in her ability to know who she is, decide for herself, and make decisions, you know, make good, make a path for herself. She doesn't trust herself to do that. She's never been asked to. And so here we are, Brooke is sort of trying to get her to, A, deal with the pain of that, and also give her permission to explore and investigate who she is and let herself off the hook for not knowing. It is okay to not know right now. You, the knowing will come, and it's through this work that the knowing comes. And so if she's willing to dive in and really take a deep, hard look at you know, her true self, she will learn who she is, and her life will unfold in a way that is true to her. At least that's my hope. <laughs> I have one more question for you uh, as we wrap this up, which is, you know, you've stepped 10 years later. Here we are bringing in treatment back. You've created this new character. Um, it's taking place inside of what's actually going on for all of us in the middle of this pandemic. Uh, and it's, it feels like it has a lot of personal ties to you and Joshua and to the writers. So my question for you is, what does this show mean to you? Uh, and what do you hope it'll mean to everybody watching? I mean, I was given the grace to explore one of the most significant relationships of my life with my own therapist. Mm. And I was able to sort of put down on paper my truths that I have lived through that relationship. I didn't know that I would ever get a chance so purely mm. to be able to do that. You know, certainly it works its way into, into my work in general, but this was a very lovely way to be able to talk about something that is so important to me. And I think that segues into what I hope people take away from this is that therapy is, is for everyone. Yeah. And everyone can benefit. Yeah. And you can go in for one thing and come out, you know, needing something else or wanting something else. You can do a short stint. You could do behavioral work. You could do any kind of work. But you can be helped by the process, by having someone in your life who is there for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No ulterior motives, just wanting you to be the best you that you can be. Mm. It doesn't matter what that looks like, just wanting you to live your truest life. And I think that these people actually have that in Dr. Taylor. Um, I really do. And I'm hopeful that that gets seen and conveyed with the show. Oh, I have to know, does your therapist watch the show? She does. I, it's so funny. Oh, yes. Yay! She must be so happy. <laughs> she has been a really beautiful um proponent of what we're what we're doing here and she feels I think you know I think she feels how I feel that somehow we managed to find the right fit very early on and that that has been a really wonderful relationship over many 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 years but that doesn't mean if you go to therapy and you don't find the right one right away doesn't mean you don't you stop yes exactly you just go find that person they are out there and Mm -hmm. go find them I love that I love that Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Jen. Uh, This has been just so beyond wonderful. We're obviously geeks about mental health and geeks about this show. So it's so wonderful to talk to you. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. This has been a really in-depth conversation. It's not often that I get to talk about the show, you know, at this level. So I appreciate how closely you both watch and, and what you're bringing to the table here. This conversation is is really important as a companion to the show and thankful, very thankful.
All right, so we've covered Brooke and Layla's episodes in our conversation with Jen, but we still got Colin and Eladio, so let's get into the rest of this week's session. Mm -hmm. Let's start with a clip of Eladio uh, once again having this kind of back and forth uh, about, you know, son and mother roles with Brooke. If I'm out in front pulling you along, what help is that going to be to you? Because it would prove that someone loved me enough to throw a rope back no matter what crazy-ass rock face I'd hung myself out on. No matter what? You're talking about unconditional love. Yes. Exactly. Yes. People think it's unattainable. It's not that hard. I've done it. I've loved that way. I do it all the fucking time. Like a mother loves her son. No, like a son loves his mother. There's a lot. (laughs) But the two things that stick out for me is, you know... What is unconditional love? Yes. That's a new term for me. And I'm talking like within the last, you know, five or so years of like really understanding what is unconditional love and what that should feel like and what that should be like versus conditional love Mm -hmm. and confusing those two things. And Mm -hmm. the expectation uh, to go to the second point, the expectation that a parent should have unconditional love for their child. But that's not always the case. And I think that that is what Eladio is uh, reckoning with. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, and what you said about this need and this drive that we see for this full acceptance mm-hmm. and what that love represents. Um, and it is really interesting to see that play out on screen between Eladio and Dr. Brooke, who both have this magnetic pull to each other. Like their, yes. their scars, their wounds are in the exact places to be complementary to one another in a way that gets really complicated. Yeah. Magnetic pull is such a great way to describe it because you really feel like they can't pull away from each other. And I think it's because they're both searching for this unconditional love. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. With, uh, you know, Eladia's mom not being around and Brooke's father and mother both having passed on yeah. and kind of feeling that this unconditional love that we as humans crave and desire is unattainable and what that does to the human spirit when, mm-hmm. I mean, that's why that when they hug each other, yeah. it was just like devastating because you could feel these two really broken spirits latching on to try and maybe fabricate unconditional love between each other. Yeah. Is that fair? Do you mind if I get a little geeky and talk well, about I, <laughs> Never do I mind. Yeah. No, I want yeah, it. Yes. Let's do it. We're going to talk about <laughs> Carl Rogers, y'all. So there's this whole branch of therapy, humanistic, client-centered therapy that was sort of brought into the therapeutic world by Carl Rogers. And one of the key aspects of therapeutic work was that change occurred in this space of unconditional positive regard, Mm. that no matter what you do or what you say, what comes up under, like, what might be filled with shame or confusion or anger, you're going to be met with this steady positive regard that has nothing, no strings attached, no conditions, Mm. nothing you have to be or no way you need to perform to be able to be worthy of that space, to have that warm acceptance. And that's just the opposite of the world, right? We see for... Eladio and Dr. Brooke, they've had this really different experiences. I mean, Dr. Brooke really describes that she basically had to meet every condition and still doesn't feel that she was ever seen as enough. You know, doesn't matter that she was top of her class at Stanford, doesn't matter that she's a successful psychologist, the expectations of who her father wanted her to be, yeah. the inability, you know, when we, st- when we start to talk about her mother, yes. that was sort of the opposite of that unconditional love. I think it's a challenging thing to grapple with. The people who you're told and who you want to love you unconditionally and to reckon with the fact that their love is conditional and that they're that it isn't steady that steady positivity isn't isn't there because then it's like where's your safe space mm-hmm. your secure base yeah and when you're doing this work of like self-exploration 
part of the reason we don't do it is because it can feel dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I noticed from when we were having the conversation with Jen, she talked about as you start to dig that X that Dr. Brooke describes, as you start to dig and go deeper, you even surprise yourself with what can come up. Yeah. And the therapist, in a really wonderful way, can be there with you to keep you secured so that you have a safe base to return to as you're exploring this like rugged new terrain of yourself right yeah that rugged mm-hmm. terrain that's a, a you have a way with words snort away i snort all the time um yeah it it, it is dangerous because the the things that you could come to realize can really hurt, mm-hmm. you know? And and it's important to have that safe space and that secure base to navigate that, mm-hmm. you know, to go to those uncharted waters and, and know that you're not going to get swallowed by the wave. Yeah, yeah. Which is what also kind of makes this particular duo uh, a little scary, right? Because... We know, or we as the audience are aware that Dr. Brooke is struggling in a way that is kind of jeopardizing her instincts and how she's interacting with Eladio, which means that she won't be the secure base that he needs. Yes. Oh, and it's painful to watch because there's a part of you that feels that magnetic pull and wants to have this fantasy play out of them healing each other, right? Yes, right? yes. Her being able to be the loving and affirming mother and him getting to be the brilliant mm-hmm. attached son that she had that rupture from. But there's that knowledge that lingers in the back of all of our minds. And Dr. Brooke calls it into the room. Yes. When she has this explosion and then automatically gathers herself up and then tries to make that distance. Can we can we listen to that clip? Please, please, please. But you can't just flip the script whenever it suits you. Mommy shit, whenever you're feeling it, talking in the middle of the night and offering to pay my medical bills. But then when I need to lean on you, you're like, oh, no, that's inappropriate. I'm just a therapist. You fucking told me I needed to change my life. No, I didn't! I fucking didn't! And if you would stop twisting my words for five fucking seconds and listen, you would realize that I... Eladio, I... I'm sorry. I don't know where that came from. You good? No. I, um... I don't think I am. She catches herself, right? Like, mm-hmm. and you see mm-hmm. her catch herself. But I think that this is evidence for why she's not that secure base and why that fantasy wouldn't play out, right? The fantasy that they could heal each other because mm-hmm. they're both hanging on by threads. Yes. Neither of them seem to be strong enough for themselves, let alone another person. Is that a fair observation? Was that a fair observation to you, Brynn? <laughs> what do you think about this? But we're friends, so we're kikiing. <laughs> Not the arbitrator of fair or unfair, right or wrong, right? Um, but uh, so is it a fair response? Yeah, definitely. I think so. Mm. Because you you really see this how the boundary testing and the the instability is actually hurting him again in the in the same way it's re traumatizing him. Yes. Right. Yes. We've talked about in the past a lot of his attachment history and how that is the primary pain that he brings into the therapeutic space is the attachment difficulty that he had, the attachment breach that he had with his mother, and how he almost so easily attaches to other people looking for that love, looking for that stability. But what do you think? It was, to me, it was the perfectionism. I wouldn't say that I'm a a rageful person. I'm a pretty pleasant person. But 
I am also control. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I am also like pretty controlled. And so that is a fear of like losing control because I -hmm. I know I've been in spaces where people lose control. And it's a very terrifying thing because they don't see you, right? When when somebody goes red, you're not there. You're not a factor. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes a very dangerous space, which you saw in Eladio's reaction. He he went from being so buck with her to immediately reverting into a little, scared puppy a little shrink yes 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 and so i think that her outburst was triggering to watch because you're like that's not how she presents herself that's not how she wants to present herself Mm -hmm. she recognized immediately the damage that she did in that moment Mm -hmm. which is different than like somebody who you know likes to you know scream at people and then like you know they move on it's it's i think it's harder when you're like oh that's not who I am. That's not what I do. But I was also hopeful that that moment would let her know how deep in trouble she is. Because <laughs> mm. she's been like making excuses and like, I could do this, I could drink and do da da da. But it's like, ah, uh, now, now it's infiltrated your work, you know? Mm-hmm. What you said really stood out to me is what would it mean for her to not be in control. Yeah. Like, what would that mean for her to be able to accept that? Mm-hmm. Especially as she's noticing this grief and the trauma of the pandemic and the work that she's doing on the front lines as a caregiver to multiple folks. Mm-hmm. And part of me, that brought up a hope that then she might seek support and help. Yes. Right? Yes. Because her pride has been about being in control, right? Mm-hmm. And being able to keep the roles separate. That she can... Yes. She can keep it all together. She can show up. And yes. that, And she's had to be, and I think that we have this narrative of black women as the strong black woman, this independent, Ooh, yeah. I can take care of all my needs. I can bring home the bacon, cook it in a pan, never let you forget you're a man, right? Yes. Um, and this, it's a really toxic narrative that there isn't that vulnerability in black women. Mm-hmm. That everything that's happening, that she can be have lost both of her parents, be struggling with her alcoholism, trying to stay at the top of her field in a time where everything has been transformed. And she's clearly in pain and she's clearly slipping. Her need to keep everything together is actually fueling this downward spiral. Yeah. One of the first things we know in step work for like addiction is admitting that you're powerless over your addiction, that your life has become unmanageable. Willing to tell the truth, like the hard truth. Because also the other thing is Eladio is not wrong. <laughs> I think that was also the piece of it was like Eladio, everything he said was quite spot on. Truth. It was truth, you know? And so I think that that also fueled the outburst and knowing on some level that it's true really highlights how dysfunctional their relationship is. Well, let's pivot to Colin because he went above and beyond in terms of crossing boundaries by showing up at her house. Dr. J, what were your thoughts on that? Uh, I have many thoughts. But <laughs> yes. There is no way that Colin, as my client, would be coming into my house, right? Uh-uh. All of us were kind of waiting to see what was going to happen with this huge boundary crossing. I mean, she's been drinking. He even knowed it. And she's aware of the fact that he knows she's been drinking and that he likes are a little loose, right? Mm-hmm. I was pretty shocked. I was terrified, honestly. Mm-hmm. I just assumed he had a gun. Mm-hmm. I assumed there was a weapon. I was like, oh, she didn't sign off on this paper. He's upset. He's been drinking. What does he have to lose? Mm-hmm. My husband is uh, uh, going to school uh, to be a therapist, and he was like, so I guess I'm never doing therapy at home. And I was like, I guess you're not. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely not. You're not going to have your clients coming up in this house. Oh, no. 
I didn't realize your husband was in school to be a therapist. That's awesome. He's starting this fall. Yes. yes. Congratulations to him. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But I think that was like a real fear. And I mean, and thinking, what is he going to do? Because he has this pattern of manipulation of, of really deteriorating if he doesn't, if he's not seen or perceived the way that he wants. So I do think that, yeah, we can't ignore the fact that that was a dangerous situation. But in some ways, we're not sure if it's because she is like drunk at this point, but she doesn't seem to back down. She sort of stands up to it. She does not flinch. What do you think about that? I was like, oh, you're drunk. You can't see that this man might come like have have a weapon on him. But she also, but then she was so confident that I then became, okay, maybe this is fine maybe this is yeah she was in no danger so maybe she clocked that early but but yeah it was still uncomfortable it's still like why is colin here well i mean and so and how much does that tell us about the trauma that we have as a society yeah of so many shootings mm-hmm. and I, I know that what comes up for me sometimes is a fear of retaliation and that externalization of that if you don't give somebody who is used to having their way their way that then they will hurt you somehow yes they will find some way to retaliate against you and even more so if they see you as somebody who is beneath them right yes Mm -hmm. but i mean if he didn't retaliate (laughs) in this original moment you know as they sit down on the couch a couple drinks in and she uh lays into him in the you remember this monologue where she mm-hmm. goes in i was like oh no like is he going like how is he going to take this <laughs> i was calling like, oh. and i i remember i was like oh she said the quiet part out loud <laughs> <laughs> she said the inside thoughts outside <laughs> Yes, we gotta listen to this clip though. Uh, yes, well, let's let's play the clip so people can really remember what we're talking about. Lots of people, those people you were just talking about, they just want to have a house in a decent neighborhood, send their kids to a safe school. I just wanted to do something that I love to do, and fucking white guys. You need to shatter the model of success in order for you to feel like you've done anything at all. Well, guess what? That shit's impossible without taking shortcuts, gaming the system, stepping on other folks without a shitload of collateral damage. Do your trips to the doctor move the stock market? Do your dinner parties determine the next leader of the free world? Because this is all some patriarchal, Dick measuring horse shit. All this talk about renaming buildings and whatnot because so and so was a monster, I say, take them all down. If your name is on the side of a building, chances are you did some horrendous shit to get it there. Poof! First of all, I said if people didn't remember, who doesn't remember this monologue? I know. I I have it. I embroidered it on a sweatshirt for myself. I'm going to read it to my husband whenever I feel some kind of way. (laughs) Yes. I mean, what was your reaction to this? I mean, like we've been talking about and we spoke about a little bit with Jen earlier, Colin is reckoning with this change that it's occurring at a national level. But part of what she says is rather than she she offers this opportunity yeah. for him to really engage with deconstructing the cage of like white patriarchal male supremacy, right? Mm-hmm. Because she says, it's not serving you. You're so dissatisfied. You're looking everywhere that you can't even feel the joy of your life because you are trapped as much as the rest of us are trapped in this cage with you. Mm. The reason you can't feel any joy of your privilege because it never feels like enough. Right, which is why when she says, you know, if your name is on the side of a building, you chances are you did some horrendous shit. To get it there, it's like, so what is it that you want, Colin? Because to get to that level you probably are doing some malicious, awful things. Mm-hmm. A- and is that what you want? Is that the system you want to live in? Is that is that how you... Like, really kind of unpacking 
his power, I think is what she did. And like kind of explaining what his power actually is, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. which is that it's not real power if you got to step on everybody else yes. to get there. Mm-hmm. But I was also thinking it must be such a not to make an excuse for, you know, cishet white men. But I was like, oh, it must be really jarring if for your entire life, everything has been like, hey. Like, yeah, not that you haven't had your own struggles or your own trauma, but, you know, it's been like there's a path paved, you know, it's a nice little path paved. It must be really traumatizing when the world literally goes, okay, no. (laughs) And Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. by the by, like the world is not doing it at the level that it should be like we are we're scratching the surface. But I would imagine it is an adjustment and there is a fight. I think that's why. When the insurrection happened in January, mm-hmm. it was a massive tantrum. You know, like what I what I felt like I was witnessing, which was so jarring, was like, oh, y'all are you think something is being taken away from you. You think your power is being taken away. And so you're retaliating. <sighs> Uh, yes. And even I, you know, I went to school at the University of Virginia. And when the white supremacists descended on the campus and on the lawn, what they were saying is you will not replace us. Right. Mm. Um, that was the chant. And part of what I've always been so intrigued about as as a psychologist is that fear that underlies it. Yes. And the fear of envisioning the unknown when the path, like you said, has been laid out so clearly. But part of what I really love when I think about inclusion work and equity work is that it's an invitation to reimagine this different world. And you see Dr. Brooke pulling Colin into that space to be like, it didn't work for you. You right. like you didn't have real relationships. You had everything in the world. And you hear him go through this process of like, persistent malaise and dissatisfaction. He was like, I thought yes. about living here and then it would never be enough. And I thought about, you hear, see these conquerors going out and like colonizing and it's never enough. It's insatiable. And I think the pandemic and the racial justice reckonings happening at the same time kind of brought into this stark relief where it's like this way that we have been doing th- things, this is not serving anyone. Right. No. It could actually kill us all. Yes. And so it's like, what are you holding on to? And like, what are you like? Like, why? Why are you holding on to this? And what are you holding on to exactly? Mm-hmm. It, it's not real. Yes. When I say it's not real, I'm not saying the privilege isn't real, but it, it's not earned. It's by way of harming other people. And so is it really yours if you had to do a whole mm-hmm. bunch of fucked up shit to get it? Get your name on that building. Yeah. Right. And I'm in Richmond, Virginia, and we have these monuments that ha- are just torn down. And there is this question of the, f- the fear that comes up as we are at a period of transition of what's next. And I really do think it's this cool concept of therapeutic work being a space to really dig into the nuance of, okay, this is hard for you. You're dealing with this crisis of self and identity in society and what can you do to dig into that and then really let's envision something together that is different like what could be next yes what could be next let's imagine that and i think just to kind of talk about like the themes of this week we talked about ladio and this maternal craving of this unconditional love for mother i felt like what i witnessed between brooke and colin beyond like just like as a black person being like i want to say all those things um <laughs> I, I would like to go to every white person and say i say the full monologue to them um it was the um it was like i felt like colin had never had anyone talk to him that way which felt also like a mother's mm-hmm. tough love in a way which was really mm-hmm. fascinating mm-hmm. Like that in some, Brooke was doing it for herself. She was not trying to mother him in that moment, right? But there was a a mothering that did happen because she, Mm -hmm. she didn't call him out his name or like, you know, like she, she like, she really just like laid out Mm -mm. the facts. And, And it seemed like he really responded to that. 
And of course, if we can take our mind and remember that it's a you know television show and that this isn't real therapy, yes. and I don't have to worry about the ethical issues and concerns. So I have to remind myself. I'm like, breathe, Janelle. This is TV. No. Right. No clients were harmed in the making of this show. Um, <laughs> yes. That this is work that they could continue to do. He was like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll see you next week. We're going to keep doing this. All right. We are almost done for today, so it's time to leave you, Brandon, my love, and our listeners with some resources and recommendations. And as always, please remember this doesn't replace therapy. So if you need that additional support and that unconditional positive regard we were talking about, reach out to a professional. So let's start off first. Um, We spoke a little bit about Jungian therapy and Carl Jung. And there are so many great books to read about Carl Jung's approach to therapy. But one that I'll suggest is The Archetypes and the Collective Unconscious, which picks up on what Dr. Brooke and Layla were talking about in terms of universal symbols Mm. and what they might represent in our search for self and identity. For folks who might be looking for culturally informed mental health resources and community therapy for Black Girls is amazing um, and is a wonderful resource in so many ways for Black affirming and culturally informed care. We also spoke some about the standards and the perfectionism that can show up as well for Black women and women in general and other women of color and people. And one of the things that I love is the Nap Ministry, which you can find on Instagram. And they talk about kind of like the revolution and how revolutionary rest is as a historically marginalized person. So check that out. I worship at the altar of naps. Yes. I'm still working on it. I struggle with that. Yes. Um, and we also spoke some about the concept of attachment, Ooh. and there's lots of great work um, by Mary Ainsworth. But the book I'm going to suggest uh, as we think about the concept is A Secure Base, and that's by John Bowlby. And that starts to talk about um, the role of parents in helping you form healthy early attachment and security. Mm. And one of the other things that we explored today was some of the ideas of trauma and how that can continue to show up in our life especially if we don't resolve and attend to it. And one of my favorite books when we think about trauma is The Body Keeps the Score. Oh, I just started it. You did? I, yes, I just started okay. it. Okay. Everyone should get it. It's very good. Yeah. Yes. Read it. I love it. Yes. So definitely check that out. As always, the um, Suicide Prevention Lifeline, keep that number in your phone. Share it when with people you love who might need it. Because just like we were talking about this week, the pandemic has definitely kicked up um, levels of suicide, like thinking about suicide, suicidal ideation. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a good resource to keep on hand. They have a wonderful website. And finally, I'd like to share the resources for alcohol. Anonymous and also Al-Anon and you can research and Google the local chapters of Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous and Al-Anon to be able to get resources and also find meetings near you. You can find these and other recommendations on the In Treatment page on HBO's website. And it looks like that's our time for this week. Which is always so sad. But y'all, be sure to subscribe to In Session, the In Treatment podcast, so you don't miss us. And while you're doing that, why not give us a rating and review? It helps others find the show. In Session is the official companion podcast for the HBO show In Treatment and is a production of HBO and Pineapple Street Studios. Production music is courtesy of HBO and Epidemic Sound. And you can watch new episodes of In Treatment on Sunday and Monday nights on HBO Max. I think that's everything. So, Dr. Janelle, I gotta say goodbye. But I'll see you next week. I can't wait. Take care. You too. I I can't continue without saying that. The comparison between Beyonce and Solange is an unfair, Mm-mm. unfair. Now don't even pit these goddesses against each other. That is an unfair question, Dr. Brooke. Um.